Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. So here in uh, 2 Timothy, just again to review, in chapter 1, it was the past. And Paul reminds Timothy of those that have been an encouragement to him. Examples. Uh, there's a couple of bad examples in chapter 1, but there are good examples. And so from his family, mother, grandmother, but Paul and Onesimus, very good examples uh, in Timothy's life. And so he reminds him where he's come from. And he uh, reminds him, too, that God has equipped him for the ministry. He's given him a spiritual gift and a spirit of power, love, of sound mind. And uh, he's, he's equipped to do what the Lord has uh, called him to do. And then he gives some encouragement as well in terms of what's important uh, in, in his life and ministry. So chapter 1, he looks to the past. Chapter 2 that we've looked at, he deals with present issues. And so as you look at the Christian life, uh, we saw these three words in chapter 2 and verse 7. Uh, the word consider, we change to the word reflect. Reflect on these things. Verse 8, remember. And then verse 14, remind. And so the things we reflected on are uh, the seriousness of the Christian life, uh, how it is, uh, is strategic and strenuous but satisfying in the end. And then the things we remembered, remember the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of the Word of God, and the purpose of our life, the fact that one day our life will be evaluated, scrutinized at the end of uh, time uh, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're reminded of things, the negative, what we should not do, things to avoid, and then they're reminded of things we need to affirm as well. Uh, the need to be uh, sanctified and the need to be separated and the need to serve. Those are important things to be reminded of. So when we come to chapter 3 and 4, it really is in a sense the future. He's looking ahead uh, from where he was. And so in, in some ways, we can stand here too and look, a, look ahead in that perspective and think of it as what is ahead, what is future. So I want to read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9 to start with, and then see what we can learn. 2 Timothy 3, 1, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, from such people turn away. For of this sort, who creep into households and make captive, captives of gullible Women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. That's quite a passage. Uh, those That description in verse 1 down to uh, verse 4, uh, there are 19 things listed uh, there. And you read that and you think, well, that sounds like the newspaper. Uh, it's where we're at today. Those things are, are happening. But 
he's writing not to the world in general. He's writing to the spiritual, or we might say Christendom. He's writing to those who uh, are seeking to have an influence on the Christians. Because when he goes on to talk about the fact that uh, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. So he's not talking about people who are totally ungodly in the sense that they're un- irreligious and don't care at all. And then he talks about the fact that they're trying to make captive of certain people, uh, gain a following. And so again, it's not just the world out there, but it's it's the world of, we might say, Christendom. And then he goes on, uh, later on, he's going to talk about persecution, which goes beyond uh, this and looks at the world in general. And so often, you know, I've looked at these these first four verses and thought, yeah, well, this is really a description of the age in which we live. And to a large extent it is. But when you take it in the context, of course, the flow of it, uh, it is, he's talking about people that have an influence within the Christian community, we might say the broader Christian community, not the church, but the the broader uh, Christendom, professendom, whatever, that broader sphere. And so by way of background, uh, we'll go to Matthew chapter 13 for a few moments and see uh, a bit of background for this that might help us to see what's going on in 2 Timothy 3. And so what happens in Matthew 13 is the Lord Jesus changes gears, we might say, strategy, tactics. He starts talking in parables. So this is probably a year and a half into his public ministry. He hasn't spoken in parables before this. But in chapter 12, they attributed his power to Beelzebub, to Satan. So, you know, it's not really God doing this, it's Satan doing it, and, and Christ is the instrument. And so that was a, a crucial uh, line of, of rejection of Christ. It was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, uh, which we cannot do in that sense today. In the context, it was something they did when Christ was on earth, his work, his words, uh, they saw it and then they said, no, that's, that's not God, that's Satan doing that. So they blasphemed the Holy uh, Spirit. And they crossed a line where judgment was going to come. And so parables are a judgment sign. Just like later on, tongues were a judgment sign against Israel, based on what you read in, in Isaiah 28. And so he starts speaking in parables. And these are the first parables he gives. And there are parables about the kingdom of heaven. And there is, again, a, a flow, a context. At the end of chapter 12, what you see is you see his mother and brothers and sisters outside the house. And they want to talk to him. And on the inside are his disciples. And somebody says, you know, your family's out there, your brothers, your sisters, they're out there. And he says, well, who really is my mother and brother and sisters? Who's my family? And he points then to the disciples. Uh, Whoever does the will of my father, verse 50, chapter 12, this is my brother and sister and mother. And so there are those on the outside claiming to belong, to have an affiliation, a relationship, But he said, no, this is the relationship that counts. And then he goes out of the house. And this is key in chapter 13 because he goes down by the seaside. And he tells four parables. After the fourth parable, he comes back into the house and tells three more parables. There's obviously a progression, too, in Scripture. And you perhaps have thought of this before. In Leviticus 23, you have seven feasts 
of Jehovah. And they picture prophetically when they're given the history of Israel in advance. Uh, Four of those are complete, uh, three still to come, but it pictures Israel's history. Uh, There's a sense in which in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters picture the progression of the church age as well, uh, from Ephesus to Laodicea, going through Philadelphia, time of persecution, and so on. And so 777, and so Israel, the church, but this is the kingdom of heaven which is something different and distinct. And so as he goes out of the house, he tells four parables standing by the seaside. And then he comes in and tells three very different parables uh, standing in the house to the disciples. But the four parables by the seaside all have something in common. And the first one, uh, as the seed is sown, uh, some of it falls on the wayside. And if you look at Uh, Verse 19, this is when the Lord's giving the explanation. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So in the parable, it's the birds grabbing the seed. But in the explanation, the Lord says, well, that speaks to the work of the devil. The wicked one comes and snatches the seed. And we know that in the gospel, don't we? That as the gospel's spread. We know that people sometimes show interest, but it doesn't go on necessarily. And if you've done any evangelism at all, you recognize there are times when uh, things are going in a direction and something happens and it just changes uh, direction. There's interference, interruption, things happen. And so uh, Satan is in opposition to what's going on. In the second parable he told, it was about the wheat and the tares. And he says in verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. And so what happened was the servants planted wheat, the enemy sowed seeds, weeds, tares, and they apparently the darnel looked just like the wheat as it was growing. So the disciples said, well, should we go pluck it up? No, you can't do that because you don't know what's real and what isn't. Let it grow to the end of the age. And the Lord Uh, will make that distinction. And so in the first parable, there's opposition to the word. uh, And Satan does that. He blinds the minds of those who do not believe, lest they see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so he opposes the gospel message. Here, he imitates, right? It looks like, but it's not the real thing. But the enemy has done this. And then in the third one, the parable of the mustard seed, and again, it, uh, it grows spectacularly, uh, starts small, but becomes a great tree. But the birds of the air come and find their nest uh, in it, nest in the branches. Now, consistently, if you go back to the first parable, the birds were the wicked one. And so here, we would take this as the work of the wicked one. Now, some people will look at these parables and speak of the, the growth of the church how spectacular it is. But he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And the birds uh, in the first parable were the wicked ones. So we would say consistently the birds should be the wicked one in here. And so as the kingdom of heaven grew, uh, these influences found their place in that kingdom. And then the fourth one is a parable of uh, leaven. Verse 33, another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven 
And the woman took it and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now, again, if you think through Scripture, three measures of meal was a meal offering in the Old Testament. And it spoke of Christ. It was presented without leaven. But here, leaven is put in. And if leaven is something good, in this parable, it's the only place in Scripture where leaven would be good. Everywhere else, leaven is bad. So I think consistently we'd say, because of where he's standing, because of the progression in the parables, that this again is a bad thing. So the leaven, false teaching has been put in, especially about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Satan has opposed, he's imitated, he's infiltrated, and then he's corrupted the truth. And so that's what the kingdom of heaven is. The Lord comes back in the house and he tells parables about what's good in the kingdom, what's true, about the pearl, about the treasure, about the fish brought in uh, to the, the, to the ship. And so we've got to keep in mind that the kingdom of heaven is something broader than the church. We are part of the kingdom of heaven, but it goes beyond us. It's Christendom. It's everybody that would say, well, I'm a Christian. If you went corner of whatever Citrus Tower and 27 there and did a survey of everybody that came by, uh, what's your religion? What are you? Uh, the majority probably would say Christian, right? Whether they are or not, uh, that's what they would say. Their parents went to a, you know, an Orthodox church or went to some sort of church. They're not Muslim. They're, they're not Hindu. Well, they probably say, well, now they might say atheist, but traditionally they would have said Christian. But we know that not everybody's a Christian, but that's the kingdom of heaven. It's broader. And so when we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is the, the broad aspect of the Christian, so-called Christian world. The fact that there's more to it than just the church, and there's these who stand in opposition. So with that in mind, when you see these 19 things, it's not just the world, uh, the secular world, we might say, that's opposed to Christ. It's the religious world that because of their lack of reality, what he said in verse, verse 5, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And so they're within that sphere but what's the power? We'll see, of course, the gospel. They deny the power uh, thereof. And so when we think of it in that way, and you uh, look at it not just our culture at large, but within that kingdom, within that Christendom or professendom, uh, we still see these things, don't we? Uh, these things are evident within uh, our culture, which traditionally has been you know, a Christian culture. And so uh, these things are true in us. You think of the things that, that these people love, uh, lovers of self, lovers, uh, lovers of, of money, and later on they're lovers of pleasure. They're, they love not the Lord, but they love other things. They love things that do something for themselves. So it's not out of love for uh, for the Lord, how they live, and you see some of these these things: unholy, unforgiving, disputers or despisers of 
of good. Now they're swayed by uh, the culture and so on. And so we see that in the in the religious world around us. We see these these things being evident. When you think of the things that they deny, they deny the power of the gospel. And so they're religious, but not with the gospel. And when we look at our world, say the Christendom, we find that's true in so many spheres. Uh, How often would uh, you hear the gospel in a Catholic church, in a Greek Orthodox church, in a Russian Orthodox church? How often would the gospel uh, be preached? I've had occasion uh, to talk twice uh, with Catholic priests in terms of a witness. And uh, one time, a friend of ours, Joe Reese, was preaching in the open air, and a priest walked by, and I happened to be there, and he stopped to listen for a minute, so I started talking to him. And uh, as I talked to him about the gospel, I said, you know, we're, we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. And he sort of repeated that. He said, yeah, we're saved by faith in Christ. And I said, no, we're saved by faith and alone in Christ alone. He would not say the word alone. He, he purposely left that, left that out. It was very obvious. Uh, I had another occasion. I was with another friend, Gary Weeks, in Ireland, and we had uh, lunch with a Catholic theologian. Uh, he was an older man. And uh, every time we got to the point where, here's what the scriptures say, his response would be, yeah, but where did you get the scriptures? Without the church, there's no salvation. The church gave you the scriptures. And so, uh, yes, a form of godliness, but denying the power of it. What's the power of it? Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. And he goes on to say, in it the just shall live by faith. That's the power of God. It's the gospel to change lives. Now, it's sort of intriguing and interesting down here to uh, flick channels, uh, you know, where we are in the Silvas, there's, I don't know how many channels on the TV, 300, 400, 500, I don't know. But there's religious programs on dozens and dozens of them. And sometimes I, I flick on one just to see what's going on, but seldom is the gospel uh, being preached, and you can see by certain names, uh, you know, there's there's certain people. You just know they're they're not going to preach the gospel. Their their motivation, I don't know what it is. You know, when you think of a, a man like Kenneth Copeland, who flies around the world in a plane that cost eighty million dollars, and uh, you know he won't talk to people in airports. Well, I'm too busy, you know that type of thing. What what's motivating them? Joel Olstein has the, apparently the largest church in the USA. He doesn't preach the gospel at all. Uh, you don't hear the gospel. It's health and wealth. It's you can be all that you want to be. Think positively. Uh, I've tried to listen to him. I've got to about two minutes is the extent of what I can do there. Maybe you you might have more grace than me, but <laughs> but I can't do it. But that's that's what's in that world out there. And this is what he's, he's talking about in, in that Christendom. They're, this is what's going on. And they, they deny the power of the gospel. And so we, we shouldn't uh, be surprised 
by the way they are because they're not born again, right? They don't have a new nature. Uh, I read somewhere that the richest pastor in the world is a man in Nigeria, a very poor country, and he's worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. Well, how can you do that uh, and still go to sleep at night? Well, he probably has a very comfortable bed, of course. But, but uh, you know, you, you see these things and you just wonder how, how it can, can go. But one of the things these people want is a following. They're seeking uh, followers, and that affirms their, their you know, teaching and so on. It's, again, going back to Joel Olstein, apparently oodles of people have moved from northern states to Texas to, to physically be in his, in his church. And you just wonder, well, what, what do they get out of it? But these people, of course, want a following. They're looking. It enhances their status and their, their ministry, whatever. And so here he talks about looking in, in for gullible uh, women. They creep into households, make captives of gullible uh, women. Now, the King James says silly women, but I, I think gullible is a better uh, translation. And the culture is, is such that, of course, there was no, uh, very few, probably no women in the workforce. They were at home. They were keepers at home at that time. They, that was just within the, the culture. And, uh, of course, uh, it, it was perhaps in some ways more approachable. It was interesting on the other side, uh, throughout the world, more often women get saved first in a household. And then maybe the men were reached. Uh, that's very obvious in the south of Ireland. Uh, women get saved very hard to, to reach the men at all. And so uh, he says that, yes, these people are looking for a following. They want to convince people that it's worth coming and joining uh, what, we, what we have. And so, uh, again, this is within Christendom. And he, he then goes on to say that they are learning, but never able, he says in verse 7, to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so it's not that they're not putting time and effort into what they're going to preach, but they haven't come to the knowledge of the truth. And of course, when you go back to 1 Corinthians 1, uh, the knowledge of the truth comes through the Spirit of God. The unsaved, without the help of the Spirit of God, look at the Scriptures and they don't understand it. But when the Spirit of God uh, touches our hearts and lives, we have the author within us, the divine author, and then we can compare Scripture uh, with Scripture. And so he then presents the example of these two men in verse 8. Now, no one knows how Paul got their names. They're not mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, Janus and Jambres. Uh, these are the magicians that stood in opposition to Moses. And remember, uh, the first, was it three miracles that Moses did? They were able to do that. And then when the lice came, they said, no, this is the hand of God. This is the end of what we can do. Uh, so there was imitation again. Uh, it looked uh, like Moses had power, but these men had power as well. But they stood in opposition uh, to him. And so he presents them as, as an example. But he, called, he says they are corrupt minds disapproved concerning uh, the faith. And so their motivation wasn't for God. Uh, their motivation was, was self-centered. And 
ultimately their legacy. He says in verse 9, here's their legacy. Their folly, it'll be exposed, manifest to all, as was Janus and Jambres. They'll come to an end, and it'll be manifest where they're at. And so that's the legacy they leave behind. So that's the world in which we live. And yes, we see it in our culture, but we've got to be aware that it's within Christendom that Paul is talking. But then in verse 10, he talks about Timothy. And by extension, we might say he talks about us. He says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions and afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, at Lystra, the persecution, persecutions I endure. Out of, out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who would desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so he says, there's, there's where we're at. But it's interesting when you think of what Paul says about himself in verse 10, in contrast to what you read about these other men. What a, what a difference. They were lovers of themselves, of money, of pleasure. They were unholy, unforgiving, ungodly, all those things. Uh, and yet Paul here presents a picture of himself. Now, it's a, it's a true picture. Uh, he talks about his doctrine. Look back in, cha- in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 6, he talks about the importance of sound doctrine. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Then in verse 16, uh, no, it must be verse 16. I wrote down the, the wrong verse, but he goes on to talk about sound doctrine. Uh, again. And so the importance of, of what we believe, sound doctrine. So back to Second uh, Timothy. That's the foundation, our faith, what we believe. So these men who are in opposition, they believe it centers on themselves, gaining a following, prominence, prosperity, those types of things. But for Paul, it starts with with sound doctrine. He talks about his manner of life, the way he lived. It's interesting when he wrote to the Thessalonians, he could say, you know how I lived among you. In other words, his life was an open book. He lived in a way that that they could see his faith, his his, uh, devotion uh, to the Lord. Uh, You can see his purpose in life, his faith, his patience, long-suffering, his love, his perseverance. Those things, he said, they're obvious as you look at my life, as you view what happened uh, in, in my life. And then he mentions the things he suffered. Antioch, remember, they wanted to stone him. He was let down by a basket on the wall. Remember when he went to Iconium, uh, they threw stones at him. At Lystra, they did the same and left him for dead. He went through all those things for the sake of Christ. He was willing to suffer. The people in the first part of the chapter, it's all about themselves. What's in it for me? But as Paul outlines his life and purpose, it's all for the sake of, of Christ. And so, tremendous contrast uh, between the two. Now, I think in verse uh, verse 12, you have a broader 
picture. Those who want to live godly will suffer persecution. And that's true in the world. Not so true in our part of the world, but in so many countries. Uh, if you you know read about the persecuted church, you Google that organization, other sites will come up, and you, you see the amount of persecution in the world. Christians, whether uh, evangelical or just by name, being killed in Nigeria, uh, you know, what they do in North Korea, in China, uh, in, in Iran, uh, all these places, the persecution that Christians face who want to live godly. Sometime recently I read of uh, the fact that a number of people are being saved in Iran, but they can't get baptized there. They're traveling to Germany to get baptized because the persecution, it would be a death warrant uh, in Iran. So we don't face the persecution that much of the world does. But interestingly enough, uh, I read that in 1948, there was perhaps just over 1 million believers in China. Now it's estimated there are 80 million believers. Missionaries were expelled in 1949. No missionaries left in China, foreign missionaries. And yet the church has grown from just over a million to about 80 million people. So persecution didn't stop it. Uh, just like the first few centuries, persecution spread the work, and the church flourished as a result. Uh, we, we haven't suffered much persecution, but perhaps it's coming. Uh, you know, people just, uh, was it uh, in Fox News, they, people charged for uh, taking a stand outside an abortion clinic. A lady in Britain uh, arrested because she stood outside a clinic and prayed. She wasn't doing anything, just stood there and prayed. Uh, a boy in Ontario arrested in his high school because he protested against uh, trans using a different washroom. He was in a Catholic high school, and the police came and arrested him for that. So who knows what's coming? It could be uh, that things, groups like us, we lose our charitable status. Uh, people that have buildings might lose their tax free status, those things might happen. Camps might be attacked. Um, you, you perhaps saw, it was at Nebraska, where that councilwoman wanted to ban summer camps. Uh, she said it was tongue-in-cheek in view of what was going on uh, against other things. But who knows what may happen? Persecution may happen. Paul started this chapter by talking about perilous times in the last days. The last days technically started with the Pentecost, this is the last days. But there is a sense in which we're probably in the last days of the last days. And you look at the world in which we live, economically, militarily, uh, morally, and in so many ways. And so we may face some persecution. We can be so thankful we won't be here for the tribulation. The Jewish people experience great tribulation. We'll be gone before then. But it could be possible that Doors will be closed. I'm sort of amazed that, uh, like in Canada, probably here in the U.S., uh, you know, we're involved in prison ministry, and we use uh, Emmaus courses and Navigator courses. And, uh, you know, when I mark these full book studies, uh, I just got a note today saying there'll be a pile waiting for me at home when I get there. But if if... Everything I write back gets vetted. Somebody has to read it, so a chaplain reads it. But I'm just sort of surprised that nobody's read Romans chapter 1 and said there's something wrong with these people. 
from their view of, of what's going on. They're intolerant of, of what's going on. But the Lord's left the door open and will continue to, to use uh, the door that he's left open. But it may close someday. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We do thank you for how relevant it is. Uh, we think of the list in Second Timothy chapter 3 of, of what's going on in the world, and, and we see it in the religious world as well as in the secular world. And we would say that we are indeed at the end of the age, the last days of the last days. And Father, we just thank you for the hope we have, the assurance we have that someday we'll be in heaven uh, with you. So Father, just encourage us with that fact that uh, we are safe and secure in your hands. Those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so we could expect that to, to happen and should not be surprised or discouraged uh, by it. We thank you too that through history and even today, you use the persecuted church to spread your word. Uh, people might be bound, but the word of God is not bound. And so we thank you for that. Much over us, we pray as we commit ourselves to you. Take us in safety, for we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.